Hello, Irish fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. As always, I am your host, Alex Painter. Thank you so much for just a bit of your time today, wherever it is that you may be listening from. I will tell you this much. I have a great story for you today, so buckle up those chin straps and get ready for a romp. Uh, But sincerely, I hope that everyone is staying as well as possible Uh, during these trying times, both from a physical standpoint, but also a mental and emotional one as well. So as a bit of good news, as of this recording, we are about 60 days from the Irish kicking off their football season on September 5th. So about two months. So that is coming down the pike very quickly. So hey, if you didn't have an opportunity to listen to the one-year special last episode, episode 25, where I reviewed Jeff Harrell's new Notre Dame book, Rockney of Ages, as well as a power ranking of the top Irish players heading into 2020, and a behind-the-curtain, so to speak, look at what goes into making one of these show episodes. Feel free to jump back in and check that out. It's well worth the time. So as some of you may be aware, I actually have twin daughters at home, Eleanor and Harper, and I've mentioned them on the show before, but they just celebrated their fifth birthday, so we took the family up for a safe, sanitized and socially distanced trip to northern Indiana, including spending a day in South Bend. So is that my family's idea of a fun time? You bet. But anyways, I snapped a few pictures, including an amazing shot of a rainbow over the St. Mary's Lake on campus. It was awesome. So head over to the Facebook page to check some of those out. So episode 26, in keeping with show tradition, let's assign the episode a representative who wore number 26 for the Irish. So for an example of this, last episode was officially represented by Rocket Ismail, who wore number 25 for the Irish from 1988 to 1991. So who are some noteworthy past wearers of 26 for your Irish? Well, let's start with running back Travis Thomas, a guy I hadn't thought of in quite some time, but Thomas played for the Irish from 2004 to 2007. He rushed for 12 career touchdowns, including leading the team with five in 2007. His name doesn't get brought up as much because he's probably a little bit overlooked because that 2007 team, which again, he led in rushing touchdowns, was that tough three and nine season. It could also be the Jamora Slaughter episode, a safety from 2009 to 2012. He ended his career with nearly 100 tackles and two interceptions. Both Thomas and Slaughter spent some time with the Cleveland Browns, my favorite NFL team who some days I'll even claim. But when discussing the best wearers of number 26, this episode belongs to, drumroll please, kicker-punter from 2011 to 2014, Kyle Brinza. Brinza was extraordinary. I'm sure most of you probably remember him. Uh, He left the school as the career field goal and overall points leader, although, of course, he was later surpassed by Justin Yoon. But in addition to that, he is also ninth in school history in punting average, with his boots sailing nearly 40 yards a kick. So Brinza actually spent part of the 2015 season with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So of note, this episode, the Kyle Brinza episode, will be the third episode represented by a specialist 
So, of course, episode 18 was repped by kicker John Carney, and episode 19 by the aforementioned Yoon. So, as we launch into the feature of this episode, please let me take 30 seconds to thank the show's consensus All-Americans, who support the show monetarily. These folks allow the show's reach to continue to expand, keep the program ad-free, and, frankly, appreciated. So, first up, we have Brad Glazer of Williamsburg, Indiana. As always, thank you to my buddy Brad for all the support. A special thank you to Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, who is among the show's most fervent supporters and has been since, I believe, October or November of last year. So, Michael, thank you so very much. I appreciate it. And finally, a new consensus All-American for the next few episodes, and that is Adam Painter from Fort Wayne, Indiana. You know, I suppose you're doing okay when you can garner some support from a family member, more than just the obligatory listen, uh, of which, you know, Adam is. So, as I mentioned, I come from a big Catholic family with six brothers and three sisters. At least I believe I've mentioned that once or twice. So, Adam is one of my brothers. So, thanks, pal. Uh, thank you again to Brad, Michael, and Adam for supporting the efforts. And I'll talk more about how to become a Consensus All-American and the benefits of such a move here at the end of the show. Okay, so this episode is going to be one of social consequence, but it'll also be hugely interesting and exciting. I promise you that. So to begin, let's journey back 96 short years ago, 1924. The country is smack dab in the middle of the decade that could only be described as roaring, or as another historian coined, quote, the era of wonderful nonsense. In the United States, the decade was fueled with good feelings after having just emerged victorious from the First World War, or the war to end all wars, and the subsequent economic boom. Women finally gained their right to vote in 1920, and a modern sense of popular culture was finding its legs, with the emergence of jazz music, flapper-style dancing, and a decidedly contemporary sense of fashion. Sports, too, were booming, and Americans were insatiably consuming them. Babe Ruth of the New York Yankees was busting fences across the country with the advent of the home run, a signature baseball play that felt almost as if Babe had invented it himself, and he hit them by the hundreds. So new baseball stadiums were being built, forged of concrete and steel to replace the antiquated wooden ones. And these new stadiums, which would expand into the college football world, too, would have the ability to hold spectators by the tens of thousands. In 1924, a small Catholic university in northern Indiana, with an enrollment of just over 2,000, was beginning to put an indelible mark on the national college football landscape. Would you believe me if I told you that when Notre Dame's football team led by larger-than-life legendary coach Knut Rockne and his backfield, the equally legendary Four Horsemen, were capturing the hearts and minds of thousands of Americans coast-to-coast coast, at a time when anti-Catholic sentiment was probably at its highest point in American history. This was, of course, because of the widespread presence of the white supremacist group, the Ku Klux Klan. Undoubtedly, most of you are probably familiar with this group, who were at the peak of what would become known as the Second Clan, or the Second Resurgence of the Clan. 
The first clan was formed shortly after the American Civil War ended in 1865. Among their targets? Recently freed slaves and their allies. For the group, their early objective was to maintain a sense of white supremacy in the South by means of intimidation, threats of violence, and even murder, engaging heavily in attempts of voter suppression for the freedmen who would have just gained their right to vote. The group would often ride at night in large groups, paying enemies visits while they were sleeping in their beds, while wearing mysterious white robes and hoods to protect their identities. Again, probably all familiar with this. But this is an incredibly succinct description of the first Klan. But by 1871, the clamps on the KKK were tightened by the Enforcement Act of 1870, signed into effect by President Ulysses S. Grant. So public sentiment soon turned away from the Klan's sometimes brutish tactics, and the group in large part dissolved in the early 1870s. Now, the second Klan found footing after D.W. Griffith's film titled The Birth of a Nation was released in 1915. Now, to make a long story short, the film, though considered a landmark effort in terms of cinema history, including being the first movie screened at the White House, it cast the first Klan as a heroic vigilante group tasked with preserving, at the time, traditional American values, such as the former social hierarchy, including a sense of white supremacy. So to couple with this, a number of the antagonists of the film are African-American characters, which are mostly white actors in blackface, but who embody a number of the negative stereotypes of the day. And just as a quick note, this entire thing, this entire movie, I should say, is on YouTube. So I'm not going to mince words about it here because, honestly, if you, if you are doubting anything I'm saying about the movie, you can go watch it yourself. But the film indeed casts the clan as though they are filling the role of a superhero. And trust me when I tell you that, that, again, is not my personal commentary. So anyway, shortly after the film's release and heavy-handed imagery, the Klan experienced a resurgence known as the Second Ku Klux Klan. And within a few years of the film's release, the group's membership could be counted in the hundreds of thousands and millions, not just the tens of thousands as the first clan could possibly claim. So in addition to their traditional anti-African-American white supremacist stance, the second clan preached for, quote, 100% Americanism which also then railed against immigrants, Jews, and had a very strong sense of anti-Catholicism. So for the Klan, Catholics and immigrants were heavily intertwined. And this was that sense of nativism that was a prevailing concept of the second Klan, white Anglo-Saxon native-born Americans. So it is also this sense of anti-immigrant nativism that has popped up its head across American history at many different points. And so the Klan would have certainly given it its megaphone. So though the Klan began heavily in the South, it soon made its way north and landed on the shores of the Ohio River in Evansville, Indiana in 1920. The effort to spread the Klan to Indiana was spearheaded by a man named... D.C. Stevenson. 
And again, I won't mince words. This is an unbelievably revolting man. But he was an effective public speaker and he was incredibly manipulative. So again, but emphasis on revolting. And I won't get into too much of that here, but you can probably put two and two together. But however, there's a lot written about him. So his recruitment efforts in Southwest Indiana were so fruitful that the Indiana clan quickly became the biggest in the country with more members than Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama combined. So by 1922, the majority of the Indiana state government were affiliated Klansmen. And I just, it cannot be understated just how quickly this swept through the entire state of Indiana. I mean, it was truly a movement. And with that ethos that appealed to apparently many Hoosiers at the time. So in 1922, the mostly Klan occupied Indiana General Assembly passed Klan Day at the Indiana State Fair, which Stevenson and the Indianapolis Klan celebrated with a cross-burning ceremony. Uh, speaking of that, it was right around this time that the Fiery Cross, which was the organization's newspaper, began publication in Indiana, and circulation grew by the week. So having conquered Evansville and most of southern and central Indiana, the now dr Grand Dragon, Stevenson moved north with eyes on Valparaiso, Indiana in 1923. So according to historian Todd Tucker, the move to Valpo was a very intentional one. Stevenson wanted to buy Valparaiso University with Klan money as the college was suffering from post-war enrollment issues and he wanted to make it a beacon of the group's white nativist values. So also of note, the school was a mere 50 miles from Catholic-held stronghold, the University of Notre Dame and the schools often played each other frequently in athletic contests. So one of the Klan's formal agenda items was a mission to end authorization for Catholic parochial schools, to abolish them completely, and to remove all Catholic influence from public schools. So according to Notre Dame historian Murray Sperber, Stevenson's plan was to make Valpo essentially a Klan university whose sole purpose was to eclipse the Catholic Notre Dame. It was at this time that the priests of Notre Dame began to grow a bit uneasy. Ultimately, the deal for the school, which was actually accepted by university officials, was nixed by national Klan leaders. So by 1924, 30% of Indiana's white male population were members of the Klan. Undeterred, though furious, about the Valpo deal falling through, Stevenson set South Bend next in the Klan's crosshairs. So it was announced that in mid-May, the Klan would set up for a week-long clavern, which was essentially a festival of, sh of sorts aimed to spread Klan values and drive enrollment numbers up in any given area, this time South Bend. So the Klan moved in on Friday, May 16th, 1924, with the Clavern set to begin the following day. Downtown, the Klan established an office on the corner of Michigan and Wayne Streets, even fashioning a burning cross in their third floor window with red light bulbs. 
Now today, among Notre Dame's student body, students identifying as Catholic comprise 80% of the pupils. In 1924, though I couldn't find the exact number, it can easily be assumed that the number was probably that or possibly even more. So let's just say Notre Dame students took heavy exception to the Klan's values, particularly that anti-Catholic bit, and took very heavy exception to their presence in South Bend. So the Notre Dame priests and leadership caught wind of a possible student protest or demonstration against the Klan and had a bulletin posted in every residence hall that Saturday morning written by university president, Father Matthew Walsh, which contained this excerpt, quote, It has been rumored that the Ku Klux Klan is to hold some sort of gathering in the vicinity of South Bend this evening. However aggravating the appearance of the Klan may be, remember that lawlessness begets lawlessness. It is my wish that the Klan be ignored, as they deserve to be ignored. The place for Notre Dame men this afternoon and tonight is on the Notre Dame campus." End quote. So again from Tucker, quote, Many of Notre Dame's Catholic students had grown up hearing lies about their faith and challenges to their patriotism. Many were immigrants or the sons of immigrants. But now, quote, the greatest expression of anti-Catholicism was preparing to march right by their university. And the Notre Dame students were not inclined to ignore the Klan, end quote. The majority of students quickly organized and began their own march to downtown South Bend. So they quickly ran into a few errant Klansmen who were trying to find Island Park, where the day's rally was to be held. So the students harassed the Klansmen, uh, even running towards them in small groups in the flying wedge formation that Coach Rockney had taught the football boys, crashing into them and scrambling the Klansmen. So though the students thought that this was great fun, they had actually poked the belly of the bear, so to speak. So, but the Klan, for the time anyways, was in a full temporary, again, retreat. So the students made their way to the Klan headquarters on the corner of Michigan and Wayne. Many grabbed potatoes out of a nearby barrel and began heaving them towards the fiery cross in the window. One by one, the students knocked out the cross's red bulbs with their potato projectiles. Save one. The bulb at the very top. Now again, this was three floors up. So it would take quite an accurate toss to even knock out any of these bulbs, but the very top one seemed just out of reach. So after nearly an hour, the students, nearly ready to give up on the final bulb, found just the man for the job in the crowd. Harry! Harry! the crowd cried. Suddenly, the mob parted as quarterback and one quarter of the vaunted Notre Dame backfield that would become known as the Four Horsemen that October, Harry Stoldrier made his way to the front. Now, Stoldrier, with the encouragement of countless backslaps from his fellow students, he sized up the lone remaining bulb. With the coolness of throwing a pass out in the flat to fellow Four Horsemen Don Miller or Jim Crowley, he reared back and gave the potato a toss. The perfectly thrown potato crashed into the window and busted the final red bulb, 
emitting a small shower of sparks through the window. The students, needless to say, were jubilant. So, bloated with confidence now, they had knocked out every bulb in the fiery cross. The students stormed the building. And shortly up, they were going up the stairs, and they bumped right into a local pastor who greeted them with a loaded revolver, which he began sticking in the students' chests. So the students then backed out of the building and soon waved a flag of truce and met with the clan inhabitants inside the building. Moving forward, an uneasy peace treaty was set between the clan and the Notre Dame students. So soon that evening, 2,000 clansmen gathered at Island Park. Mere blocks away, the students gathered at one of their favorite haunts, Hully and Mike's Pool Hall, which, before he had passed about four years earlier, was a favorite spot of a certain George Gipp, a pool shark in his own right. But the students contemplated their next move. The Klansmen had been denied a parade permit, but stated that they fully intended to parade anyway at 6.30 p.m. that evening across the city. The Notre Dame men decided that they would put the ball in the Klan's court, so to speak. Meet at the Jefferson Boulevard Bridge at 6.30 p.m. That's the time they intend to start the parade, a student leader cried. If the police need us, we will be there, 2,000 strong. A chorus of approving whoops and shouts filled the pool hall. The students then returned to campus. Much to the relief of campus leaders, the city ordered the parade canceled and the students returned to campus with captured robes and hoods, which they had ran up the campus flagpoles in victory. So on Sunday, May 18th, a day after the initially planned parade and skirmish, things were quiet around South Bend. Now on Monday, May 19th, the following day, the remaining Klansmen repaired their headquarters, even fixed the fiery cross light in the window. The repaired light almost served as a homing beacon for the students, and soon 500 Notre Damers filled the street outside the Klan headquarters. Soon, the Klansmen began filing out of their own building, filling the opposite side of the street, standing roughly equivalent in number. A large detachment of the South Bend and other surrounding city and town's police officers soon emerged on the scene as well. Then, out of the Notre Dame crowd, one student hurled a potato at the Klan-held building, which smashed harmlessly against the bricks. But the South Bend Police Department and others used that as an inciting incident and soon charged the students to gain control of the situation. The students, initially surprised the South Bend police were on the offensive, stood their ground. Soon, the Klan, who moved to block the students' route of retreat, joined the fray, throwing bottles and rocks into the giant mass. Soon, dozens of Klansmen ran in and joined the hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Needless to say, the scene was complete bedlam, with the three factions all fighting each other. Soon, city officials had no idea what to do but to call in Father Walsh, again, president of Notre Dame, and he was summoned in to try to maintain the peace and calm the students down. He was successful, and the students returned to campus. So in the aftermath, publicly, the students bore the brunt of the scrutiny, mostly because the, again, wildly popular Fiery Cross newspaper accused the students of beating 
women and children tipping over baby carriages while shredding American flags. Of course, none of this was true. But a Chicago paper cheered the students under the headline, Students Rout Klansmen. Though I personally don't condone violence, again, the source of the student's passion can be easily detected here. Walsh had Coach Knut Rockney speak to the students in a convocation about the importance of community and working together, and a subtle nod to please listen to your campus leaders as well. In 1924, Rockney's Irish won a national championship. Under center, once again, was famed quarterback and one-time potato tosser, Harry Stoldreer. Rockney's four horsemen and seven mules swept the competition for a perfect 10-0 record, scoring an average of over 28 points per contest, while yielding just over five on defense. The Indiana Ku Klux Klan peaked between 1922 and 1926. In 1925, D.C. Stevenson was tried and convicted of kidnapping and murder in the death of Madge Oberholzer. This was an incredibly heart-wrenching story, but it should be noted that in her tragic death, the Grand Dragon of the Indiana Klan was put away for life. The Indiana Klan soon shriveled to a small band of zealots by the end of the decade. And that, friends, is the time that the students of Notre Dame stood up to in a way that few had up to that point against injustice, bigotry, and hatred. Sometimes doing the right thing isn't popular and can be extremely difficult. Nearly 100 years later, Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast, commends these students for their bravery and their fortitude. And we will be right back. That's quite an interesting story and a very interesting chapter in Notre Dame history. And I would be remiss not to mention the primary source. So I used two of them. So the first was Shake Down the Thunder, the creation of Notre Dame football, written by Murray Sperber, which is a book that I frequently use for this episode. But the other is called Notre Dame vs. the Klan. This episode, in some sense, was kind of an abridged version of part of this book. Uh, but it's called, yes, Notre Dame vs. the Klan, How the Fighting Irish Defeated the Ku Klux Klan. And it was written by Todd Tucker. So if you're on the Facebook page, I've actually recommended this book a number of times, a couple times, I should say, in like videos and other, uh, well, actually other episodes as well. Uh, but as, as I mentioned, this, this is a hugely interesting story. And I got to believe that until Todd wrote this book back in 2004, it was a virtually unknown event or episode in Notre Dame history. And so he kind of details how he discovered it himself, which was also very interesting. But uh, not to skew towards maybe a controversial topic, but talking about the Indiana Klan is extremely interesting to me. Uh, of course, not in the least bit because I subscribe to any of their ethos, uh, which I don't, obviously. But just the fact that how pervasive their hold was and how strategic and how sophisticated uh, Stevenson was and 
he, there's so many moving parts that, yes, eventually they effectively ran the state, including the governor was an affiliated Klansman at this time. So, uh, you know, and they didn't meet a whole lot of resistance at any turn. So I think just the idea that they show up virtually on the doorstep of one of the most prominent Catholic institutions of higher learning, you know, obviously South Bend was a sizable city, still is, but obviously a message was meaning to be sent, uh, was intended to be sent by that tactical move. The fact that the students rose to the occasion and uh, resisted in the way that they did, I think was extremely admirable. So again, the book is called Notre Dame vs. the Klan, How the Fighting Irish Defeated the Ku Klux Klan, written in 2004, or I should say published in 2004, by Todd Tucker. And when I first picked the book up, admittedly, I thought maybe what I was going to get into was a football game, you know, the Klan versus Notre Dame on the gridiron. And some people might be like, well, that's stupid. But the fact is, the Klan and other groups like the Klan fielded lots of athletic teams, particularly in the 1920s, uh, you know, as a way that sports were gaining popularity seemingly by the year, particularly baseball and football. And I knew that the Ku Klux Klan had actually fielded many baseball teams throughout the years. And interestingly enough, a lot of their baseball teams would turn around and play all black Negro League teams, which is kind of if you, know, if you know me, you know that that's kind of a bit of my interest as well as the, the baseball Negro Leagues. But so I, I was actually very shocked by what I found that it wasn't on the gridiron that these two factions played. It was on the streets of South Bend in complete total fisticuffs. So I think, if again, if you're interested in anything that was talked about or discussed during this episode, I would strongly encourage you to go back and if you can find it, uh, it's in the Notre Dame bookstore. I do know that, but Notre Dame vs. the Klan uh, by Todd Tucker. But again, I hate to beat the proverbial dead horse here, but I really hope you did enjoy that. I know that's a story that a lot of Notre Dame fans aren't aware of, and I think it is so interesting. And I really tried to encapsulate it into a very digestible 20, 25 minutes there. But again, if you want to get the whole story, it's out there. So moving forward, what's what's the show up to? I've been teasing it for a number of episodes here. I'll be speaking with local Richmond native and prospective Notre Dame kicker, Gage Pewterball. Uh, actually here in the coming days, probably sometime this week. So I'm very much looking forward to talking to him about his trip to Notre Dame, official recruitment trip he took earlier this year. What's the process of being a highly touted Division One, you know, football player? What's that like? It's not one that I can sympathize with and certainly probably most of the listening audience can't sympathize with. So uh, you'll, I think you're going to be impressed by him too. He's a very, he's a very polite young man, and I think he's got a very bright future regardless of which university he chooses. However, since he is a local guy and he was formerly being recruited by Notre Dame, I think he's actually the only kicker punter on the master recruitment list. So I think that's pretty cool too. So we'll have a chance to check in with him. So that's the most pressing thing coming down the pike. As I mentioned earlier in the show, I am readying the season preview episode, but I am also wanting to make sure I have all of the most up-to-date information about scheduling and, and all of that in response to, of course, the global pandemic. So that's also coming down the pike. And as I've said, I typically do a fairly good job, I think, of just teasing what's coming down, uh, you know, coming down the stretch here. And not to clumsily segment into something different here, but on my recent aforementioned trip up to South Bend uh, for the little family vacation, I was able to stop in at Augie's locker room. And so I was able to talk to Augie, who many of you know, I know, um, and you know that he's about as good as it gets as well. But he was kind of relaying 
to me, kind of the struggles uh, he has had being basically the only employee of his store during the pandemic, which of course, Augie's Locker Room, if you haven't visited that next time you're in South Bend, it's a must stop. But Augie's had to close for several months. And since I mentioned he is a basically the only employee of the store, that actually creates a lot of issues when trying to secure funds, you know, special funds set aside for the the pandemic and COVID-19 and all that. So uh, the, actually the South Bend Tribune wrote a really nice article about Augie and the store back in, let's see, late June. And hopefully, you know, people are being cognizant of the fact that if we don't support these kinds of places, they go away. And a place like Augie's, it won't come back. So if you have it, uh, if you have extra money or you have an extra space on your wall or there's a birthday coming up or a holiday, any gift-giving holiday, and you're a Notre Dame fan or a loved one is a Notre Dame fan, please consider uh, patronizing Augie at Augie's Locker Room. So he says, quote, sorry, let me just bring up the paper here. Don't mind me. (laughs) He says, quote, we have things in here that people have never seen. To me, it's something special to let people come in and see. And I love it when people come in just to look. And that is the kind of person that Augie is. If you go in there with no intention to buy anything, he will talk to you as if you are going in there to buy one of his most expensive pieces. That's the kind of humility you can expect when you go in there. Now, I know that a lot of us don't live in the South Bend area. I don't. Uh, however, if you are otherwise unable to go in and you know shop in person, uh, you can visit the website, Augie's Locker Room. It's really easy to find on the internet. And they have actually, in response to this article and kind of knowing that a lot of folks aren't able to come into the store, they've kind of revamped their online presence a little bit. And there's a ton of items both on their website as well as the eBay store. So again, just a little bit of a consideration there about Augie's Locker Room with my friend Jim Augustine. And while I was at Augie's, I was able to meet up with Jeff Harrell, who signed my copy of Rockney of Ages. So I know a couple of you in the listening audience has had an opportunity to pick up the uh, book Rockney of Ages, one that we've covered pretty extensively in show history. So if you are interested, uh, please know that that book is available on Amazon. And uh, again, it's called The Rockney of Ages. So that's again from our friend Jeff Harrell. So before we close, a few thank yous are in order. First and foremost, thank you again to you, the listener, if you've gotten this far in the episode. I know that a number of you have been around here for a long time, so please know that I'm eternally grateful for your company, and if this is the first time you've listened to the show, uh, please know that I'm eternally grateful for you also, and don't hesitate to go back, uh, whether you're listening on your iPhone, on Spotify, whatever have you, and go back and listen to the show's catalog. Uh, There's a number of episodes that although they might be a year old or close to a year old or six months old, I try to make the episodes in a way that doesn't date them too much. That way you can go back and listen to them and just get a good story whenever you'd like. So again, next up is to the show's Consensus All-Americans. Again, those who donate to the show and keep uh, the lights on, as I like to say, and keep it 100% ad-free for all of us to enjoy. So again, Brad Glazer from Williamsburg, Indiana, Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, and the newest All-American, Adam Painter, from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Please know that your contributions are incredibly invaluable. And please note that 100% of the funds that come in by way of the Consensus All-American program go directly back into the show. And I'll tell you how to do that here in just a second. 
As always, thank you to Joseph Rakish, who allows the show to use his song, Knut Rockney, as the theme song. You can find it on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube, pretty much wherever you listen to music. You find it there. You can find any of his other songs, too. So give it a spin. The song's called Knut Rockney, very appropriately. So if you dig the show, you can find it on Apple Podcasts. If you have an iPhone, it's that purple icon. Spotify, as well as Podbean at Onward to Victory. .podbean.com. So please, please, please like, subscribe, do anything that you have to do to make sure you're getting alerted to all the new episodes. And please interact with the show on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash onward to victory. We have quite a few new members on Facebook, so welcome to all of you. Uh, again, I just posted some pictures from a recent family trip to South Bend on the Facebook page. If you're interested in seeing them, jump on over. Please feel free to uh, anyone to make your voice heard on the Facebook platform uh, through Messenger, but also feel free to send the show a good old fashioned email at onward to victory podcast at gmail.com. So, again, if you would like to name yourself to the onward to victory consensus all American list and join loyal sons Brad, Michael, and Adam and become a loyal son or daughter, so to speak, on your own, you can do so very simply. Just $15. We'll sponsor a few episodes and get your name called out as a consensus All-American over the air. You can donate at paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation. Or if you want to donate a certain amount per month, please visit patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. Please know that any support, again, 100% of it goes directly back into the show. And please note that all of it is so greatly appreciated. And so some of you longer listeners may just be asking yourself right now, like, I thought he said $10 last episode. Well, here's the deal on that. Uh, the amount has been raised to $15 because thanks to the generosity of our current consensus All-Americans, if you become a consensus All-American today, that extra $5 will cover shipping to have the most recent show merchandise shipped directly to your home. That includes actually a world famous Father William Corby coaster uh, for your drinks. And speaking of for your drinks, also a can koozie. You know, keep your beverages nice and cold. So it's the official show merch, Onward to Victory and Notre Dame Football Podcast. Again, the Father William Corby coasters, world famous Corby coasters, and the can koozie. So we're trying to take care of your beverages this fall, hopefully for football season. But again, so that is why the price for Consensus All-American is actually $5 more. If you would have donated last month $10, you would have gotten a really heartfelt call out as I do for all these episodes. But now this month for just $5 more, $15, you're going to sponsor multiple episodes as well as get that stuff delivered directly to your door from me. So that is uh, that's that explains that, hopefully. So again, if you're interested... That'd be amazing. I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So that'll about wrap things up here. I really hope again that you enjoyed the story about how some Notre Dame students banded together against the Ku Klux Klan for an utterly riveting chapter in school history. So anyways, uh, this is time for me to sign off. So again, my name is Alex Painter. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And until next time, and as always, always go Irish.